Hello and welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. I'm James Rudd, the Digital Media Editor at Heart. Today I'm joined by Professor Ben Levine, who is a cardiologist with a special interest in space travel and its effects on health of the cardiovascular system. Take it away, Ben. My name is Dr. Ben Levine. I'm a cardiologist and cardiovascular physiologist, professor of medicine at University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. That's in Dallas, Texas. And I also am the director of the Institute for Exercise and Environmental Medicine. It's the largest center for the study of human physiology in the United States. And we're here in Manchester at the British Cardiovascular Society meeting 2017, and you've just given the opening keynote lecture Uh, which was all about space travel and the cardiovascular system, and a really fascinating lecture. And I wonder if we could perhaps start by you telling us the the physiological changes that you see in astronauts when they enroll in the space program and actually end up in space, either on the shuttle or as part of the International Space Station crew. The most dramatic and clinically relevant finding that we saw early on in the space program was that astronauts would faint. They'd have syncope when they return from spaceflight. In fact, 25 to as much as 66% of astronauts can't stand for 10 minutes after even short duration spaceflight. So that really drove much of the uh, attention in the early days of the space program, mostly on the space shuttle, on the Space Lab Life Sciences missions. We focused on both the volume regulatory processes, what regulates cardiac volume, and then Uh, Equally as important, the reflex response to that, uh, baroreflex control of heart rate and peripheral resistance. And were you able to figure out why astronauts are so prone to fainting once they return to Earth? I think that we have, um, and it's really two components. The first is the volumetric component, and the other is the reflex component. So, So ultimately, when you stand up, gravity pulls blood below the heart, and the heart unloads, stroke volume goes down, typically by at least 50%, sometimes more. And then um, there's baroreflex upregulation of heart rate and sympathetic nerve activity. And what we found, first and foremost, is that stroke volume is much lower in the upright position after spaceflight. That's something that happens probably pretty early, and mostly because of the loss of plasma volume. We lose about 500 mL of plasma volume because of the central fluid shift that occurs when you go from 1G to 0G. And uh, you were saying in your talk that on return to, to Kazakhstan, where the astronauts typically return to Earth, they actually get an intravenous infusion to try and correct that? Well, they do now. The, now that we're in the space uh, station era with long-duration spaceflight, everybody gets a volume infusion, and that is quite successful. So uh, it emphasizes really the two components. One is the loss of volume, and the other is the loss of cardiac mass. In the absence of a countermeasure, you lose about 1% of your heart muscle mass every week that you're in flight. It's a quite dramatic response, and and as we've looked over many years of different experiments, fully a third of the heart's muscle mass is adaptable. It's plastic in response to physical activity. So you combine cardiac atrophy with hypovolemia, and now it's the perfect storm of central hypovolemia. And one of the ways that you were discussing you try to combat that in space is by a very rigorous exercise program that all astronauts have to do. Can you tell us a bit about the length of uh, duration and intensity of exercise and the primary reasons that you're doing that in space? 
So the astronauts do have a very aggressive exercise program. It involves strength training as well as endurance training. I will have to say that most of the purpose of the, of the two hours or so is designed to preserve bone structure and function as well as skeletal muscle. But of course, we benefited as cardiologists because it also preserves cardiac muscle mass. And we found in our most recent experiments on the space station, um, that if we use MRI to look at left ventricular mass before and after spaceflight, it actually doesn't change. So in our early bed rest studies and the early days of the space program, we saw 1% a week. Now we really don't, on average, don't see any loss of cardiac muscle mass. So now if you preserve muscle mass and you give a volume infusion, well, people don't faint anymore. And what about arrhythmias in space? I mean, I guess that's one of the things that as a doctor, I would worry about arrhythmias, acute coronary syndrome. We'll come on to, to screening for cardiovascular disease in a second, but is there any evidence that living in space for a prolonged period of time is arrhythmogenic? Well, that was one of the major concerns uh, of the space program early on, and probably that's because these astronauts were never monitored on the ground, and they were only monitored in space. And as every one of your listening cardiologists know, um, if you monitor people, sometimes you find arrhythmias, and we found the same. In our current space station studies, we did 48-hour Holter monitoring, and we found a lot of arrhythmias, supraventricular and ventricular arrhythmias. And it turns out that the people who have arrhythmias on the ground are the same ones who have arrhythmias in space. Um, there may be a some rare individuals who, in the context of sympathetic activation, which occurs in space, may accelerate their arrhythmias, but we've never seen anything life-threatening, and we think, for the most part, spaceflight by itself is not arrhythmogenic. Now, with, I, I say that with only one caveat, because we are flying middle-aged men and women, and as your audience knows, one of the big concerns and growing concerns is with atrial fibrillation. And the heart's, the atrial size does get bigger in flight. And there are some changes in atrial electrical activity, predominantly reductions in the root mean square of the P wave signal averaged EKG. So we're a little bit worried that perhaps very long duration flight in the susceptible individual could increase the risk of atrial fibrillation. And what about atherosclerosis? And, and how, how healthy does your heart have to be to, to get you into the space program? Well, you know, we're, dealing, we're talking about a mission to Mars being at least two and a half years. So that's two and a half years away from medical care. You know, if you have an acute coronary syndrome, you're not going to get a primary cardiovascular intervention. It's not going to happen. You're not getting your stent in space. So we really have to fly the healthiest people that we possibly can. And one way to do that is to screen them as intensively as possible. So we've recently introduced coronary calcium screening into the space program. You can't get into the astronaut core with a coronary calcium score that's more than 10. But we use the, the 10 criteria because when we initiated this program, the noise in the coronary calcium was perhaps plus or minus 10. In, in essence, the, still the, the, the most of the astronauts do have a coronary calcium score of zero. Of course, there are some legacy astronauts who have more calcium, and it takes a longer, a pretty long time before when you get selected to when you fly. And as a sports cardiologist, if you ask 
what is the most common cause of sudden cardiac death in an athlete who is over the age of 35? It's coronary disease. So we really want to make sure we're flying the healthiest astronauts possible. And you've devised a, a new score, a, a twist on a previously used score, but which incorporates coronary calcium. Can you talk briefly about that? Sure. Funded by the National Space Biomedical Research Institute, we merged patient-level data from MESA, of the multi-ethnic study of atherosclerosis, the Dallas Heart Study, and the prospective Army Coronary Calcium Project. And we focused on uh, the age range of the astronauts, 40 to 65, and we used all the typical criteria that are in the pool cohort equations, uh, diabetes, hypertension, cholesterol, things like that. Turns out that family history is quite important in the Dallas Heart Study, and we have included it, even though it's not part of the pooled cohort equations. And then most importantly, we include coronary calcium. And it's a remarkably good calculator. It, it has a substantial improvement in C-statistic and net reclassification index compared to the pooled cohort equations. It includes atherosclerotic disease, not just coronary heart disease, some in your audience may know the MESA group has included calcium in their new calculator. But those, those ages are much older, and it focuses only on uh, CHD events as opposed to CVD events. So we've just finished validating this equation in the Framingham uh, calcium cohort, and uh, we hope to present it at the American Heart and publish it simultaneously later this fall. And we've created an app called the Astro Charm, the Astronaut Cardiovascular Health and Risk Modification Score, and we hope it will go into broad use. Sounds very interesting. And just finally, one of the challenges you mentioned in long-duration space flights to Mars, you said at least two years to get there, um, is radiation. Can you talk about how radiation concerns you, uh, particularly in its relationship to the heart, and also what strategies we might be able to use to, to reduce the, the dose of radiation the astronauts receive. So the biggest problem, once you get beyond the Van Allen belts, that protective layer that minimizes the radiation exposure to the Earth and the Earth's atmosphere, is high doses of cosmic radiation, and particularly enhanced with solar particle events. So you can get huge radiation doses. And we know from the, both the early days um, of uh, x-ray therapy uh, in patients with Hodgkin's disease is probably the biggest example, that chest radiation, at least using Earth-based radiation, um, markedly enhances and accelerates atherosclerosis. Um, even from the breast cancer world, we know that, for example, uh, left-sided breast radiation in women with breast cancer has a substantially increased risk of uh, coronary disease than right-sided uh, radiation therapy. And there doesn't seem to be any lower limit to that. That risk increases even with the smallest amounts of radiation. So we're quite anxious about that. And we funded a number of studies looking at the basic science of radiation-induced uh, coronary disease. It's predominantly inflammatory, uh, oxidative stress mediated, um, and Dan Berkowitz from Hopkins and a number of others has shown that given the right kind of antioxidants, oxypurinol, for example, in animal studies, um, has been extremely beneficial at preserving endothelial function in the coronaries, preventing uh, vascular stiffness, and we hope that that kind of strategy will be productive going forward. Is there any kind of shielding you can do to the space vehicle itself? 
You know, there are, of course there is shielding, but shields are heavy, you know, and, and heavy means you can't fly it. So um, I'm sure that shielding is an in intimate part of NASA's plans going forward, trying to find the very best uh, tools and uh, to do that, but I think we also need to be aware how we can modify the body's response to radiation just in case we can't protect it enough. Fantastic. Fantastic.